If you have your Bibles, Hebrews chapter one, week two in our series, in this letter, this book, this epistle to the Hebrews. And so this, this morning, we are going to be looking at verses five through 14 of Hebrews chapter one. Hebrews one, verses five through 14. And so we'll read that in just a minute. But as we come to this passage, before we kind of, we read the passage and we, and we lay out kind of our outline, I just wanna make kind of three preliminary points Okay, so these are like the, the points before the points, okay? And so they, they didn't fit nicely in an outline uh, in the text. And so I, these are just, think of these as preparing the way before we dive in. So these are like the, we're, we're getting ready to, to take off in a plane and we're gonna skydive into Hebrews 1, 5 through 14. And so we're on the airplane. I'm just telling you some things to expect when we take that leap. So, so here's three kind of things that, that as we read the text are gonna be obvious, but I just wanna draw your attention to them um, here at the outset. And so the first thing that's going to be obvious as we, as we read these verses, it's going to become very clear that these verses are connected to last week's passage, and these verses are clearly preparing the way for the main point in next week's passage, which means that the first three or four sermons in this series, they're all going to be building on one another. And the main point that these first three or four sermons in the book of Hebrews is going to make is that, that Jesus is Lord, or that Jesus is supreme. And so that's going to be the main point that, that all of these are building towards, the, the glory of Christ, the supremacy of Christ, the preeminence of Christ. We saw it last week, we're going to see it this week, and we're going to see it in the coming weeks. And so as we read our passage, even though it, it can easily become centered around angels, so angels are going to be discussed, it would be easy to get, get, get uh, overly concerned with, with angels, that would miss the larger point, because this mention of angels is only pursued in order to show the supremacy of Christ. And so he mentions angels only because the mention of angels will help us recognize the glory and supremacy of Christ because as will be made clear, he's greater than the angels. He's greater than any and every heavenly messenger. And so the main idea of today's sermon, if you wanna write a summary sentence, it's simply that as the son of God, Jesus is superior to the angels. As the Son of God, Jesus is clearly superior to the angels, or a shortened version, Jesus Christ is the superior Son. Jesus Christ is the superior Son. So that's the first thing to note. It's part of a larger context. The second thing to note from these verses is the way that the Old Testament is understood and the way that the Old Testament is applied to make the argument that supports this case here in these verses. And what I mean is this, there, there are five Old Testament passages that the author of Hebrews quotes in these verses. Now there's one that the Old Testament passage he quotes that, that only refers to angels, but the five passages that he first quotes, they refer to the son or the king or the Lord. They're all these Old Testament passages and they're all mentioned here for the specific purpose of making a point about Jesus. And this use of the Old Testament makes it very clear that the author of Hebrews has a profound conviction that the Old Testament is a Christ-centered book. So he's gonna take all these Old Testament quotes and say these are talking about Jesus. So the Old Testament, as he's reading it, he's understanding it as a Christ-centered book. And by quoting these Old Testament passages in order to point to Christ, that this, this is not unique to the author of Hebrews. This is a common New Testament pattern 
And so, and so as we read some of these Old Testament prophecies, these writers frequently look beyond their immediate scene to a day when their predictions would be fulfilled. And as these Old Testament prophets and, and, and kings and, and the psalmists, they, they're impress, they, they, they point beyond their own time to a time when these things would be fulfilled in the ultimate sense. And they use impressive language that describes these greater realities than, than what was in their immediate circumstances. And all the fulfillment and all the greater realities have been realized in Christ, which shapes how we read, not just the Old Testament, but the entire Bible. The entire Bible from first to to last actually tells one story. Did you know that? It's about God's saving activity in the person and work of Jesus Christ. In fact, if if I were to line all of you here up in a line and ask you one at a time, what is the main idea of the Bible? If I said, what is the Bible all about? And you all had to answer that question. How would you answer? What's the main idea of the Bible? Or or, or what is the Bible all about? This is an important question. How we read it is gonna be influenced by how we answer that question. Let, Let me read a quote by one of my favorite children's Bibles. At the outset, the very beginning, the first chapter, listen to this quote. As this author answers those questions, this kid's Bible reads, quote, some people think the Bible is a book of rules telling you what you should and shouldn't do. Well, the Bible certainly does have some rules in it. They show you how life works the best, but the Bible isn't mainly about you and what you should be doing. It's about God and what he has done. Other people think the Bible is a book of heroes, showing you people you should copy. The Bible does have some heroes in it, but most of the people in the Bible aren't heroes at all. They actually make some pretty big mistakes. They get afraid and they run away. They, and at times they are downright mean, No, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. Yes, there are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story. The story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. And it takes the whole Bible to tell this one story. And at the center of the story, there is a person Every story in the Bible whispers his name. He is like the missing piece in a puzzle, the piece that makes all the other pieces fit together. And suddenly you can see a beautiful picture, the one big story. And so did you notice notice that phrase? Every story whispers his name. It's not always loud and clear, but it's always there. Jesus is the main idea of the story. You can't understand the Bible without understanding the person and work of Jesus. And in fact, this is Jesus' own conviction. On the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, after his resurrection, he appears to do disciples and they're so downcast and disheartened. They're like, hey, we thought this guy was the Messiah, but he's actually been crucified. And so they're all bummed out walking. And so Jesus, post-resurrection, appears beside him and starts walking with him. He's like, you slow of heart, didn't you know that the Messiah had to suffer? This is all part of the plan. And then, this is Luke 24, 20, Jesus This is what's recorded. This is what Jesus does with these two men. Beginning with Moses and the prophets, Old Testament, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself, which tells us Jesus is saying, hey, remember in the law when this this was said? Remember this passage? Remember when this happened? Remember the prophets? All that was pointing to me. And so Jesus, from his own lips, understands all of the Bible to be about himself. And so that ought to influence how we read our Bible. And so in our passage this morning specifically, we're gonna see that that our author 
as he quotes Psalm 2 and 2 Samuel 7 and Psalm 97 and Psalm 45 and Psalm 102 and Psalm 110, as he's quoting all these Old Testament passages, he's seeing predictions and statements that find their ultimate meaning and fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The author of Hebrews reads the Old Testament through the glasses of a Christian, through the spectacles of a Christian with Christ at the center of its interpretation. That's just, that's just basic Christian understanding as, as we read the Bible. The Bible is about Jesus, and so as we read the Old Testament, we understand that he is the point of it all. That's an important lesson, and we'll see that at work in our passage this morning. Then the third thing to note here at the outset is the way the author views the Old Testament, not in his Christocentric view, which we just said, but, but instead he views the Old Testament, how he views the relationship between God's voice and what scripture says, between what God says and say what the psalmist says, because there's a clear relationship that our author understands between those two things. And in trying to understand this relationship, what we're gonna see is that in all these quotations from the Old Testament, the author doesn't preface his mention of these passages by saying, in the Bible it says, or in Psalm, David says this. That's not how he prefaces these quotes, these Old Testament quotes. Instead, when he prefaces these Old Testament quotations, he says, what does God say about angels? Old Testament quote, assuming that's what God says. Or what does God say about the firstborn when he comes into the world? Quote, Old Testament. What does God say about the son? Quote, Old Testament. And so the answer to all those questions regarding what God says is what the scripture says. And so that's a clear relationship between what God says and what the Old Testament says. The author of Hebrews understands that what the Old Testament says, whether it's Psalm 2 or 2 Samuel 7, all of it is not just what some Old Testament prophet said. It is what God has said. And that's a big deal. I mean, that, that's evidence of, uh, of the, the doctrine of the inspiration of scripture. It's not human authors primarily. There is a divine author who is said to say, to speak through the scriptures. And so the author of Hebrews in no way unique to the New Testament, other New Testament authors understands that God has spoken in the scriptures and that's significant. And we'll see that in our passage this morning. Well, those are the preliminary observations. Now we've, we've reached our altitude. Now it's time for us to, to jump out of the plane and look in the text. And so if you have your Bibles, you can read along as I, you can follow along as I read Hebrews 1. I'm gonna begin in verse five and read through verse 14. And so Hebrews 1 beginning in verse five. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you're my son, today I've begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. And of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You've loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the, oil of, with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he that is God ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they, that is the angels, not all ministering spirits sent out to serve 
for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. And then next week, Lord, we'll pick up in chapter two. Let me, let me pray before we get into these verses. Father, we are so thankful for your word. We're so thankful that we can sit here in this place and, and all have copies of your word that we can read and we can, we can understand in our own language. And so I pray that, that you, would, you would honor your word, that you would make it effective, that it would accomplish the purpose that it's been sent for here in this time, in this place. And so we pray that you would, you would build your church. Would you convict the sinner? Would you encourage the weak? Would you sustain your people through your word this morning? It's in Christ's name I pray, amen. Well, as we work through, um, the, the main idea again is the superiority of the son, specifically the superiority of the son over and above the angels. And so we're not gonna have an outline, we're just gonna have reasons why the son is superior to the angels. Now, it may seem strange to us to, to think about angels and think, well, why do we need to think about the son in relation to the angels? I don't think we tend to struggle with the worship of angels or the equality of Jesus to angels. That's not a struggle that I have or a theological category that, that I can't reconcile. And I, I don't think that the worship of angels is, is the, the issue that the author's addressing here. Now that depends, some people disagree with me. It depends on who you read. But I don't know that the worship of angels is the main, is the main issue that the author of Hebrews is addressing in these verses. Yes, there was an infatuation with angels in the times, in the, the intertestamental period. So in the early church, there was certainly a, a, an issue there. So maybe part of it, but I don't think the author's main concern is the worship of angels. In other words, I don't think the main reason he's mentioning angels here is because his audience is tempted to worship them in, in, instead of Jesus. I don't think that's his point. Instead, it seems to me that the mention of angels and the clear contrast between the angels and the sun is drawn out specifically because of what's gonna come in verses one through four of chapter two. In other words, the author seems to be going out of his way to show the superiority of the sun over and above angels because he's gonna contrast the final word that's come through, through the sun with the word that came through angels, namely the old covenant. That's gonna be chapter two. And so the author of Hebrews is making a lesser to greater argument. And he's building his case here. He wants to make the point that Jesus is better, way better, far superior than angels. Therefore, the word that's come through him must be heeded much more than when he did the word that came through angels. Do you see how that's a lesser than, greater than argument? It's like if I said to, to my oldest son, if I said, son, last time we went to glazed donuts, you ate three whole donuts. And you got really sick after eating all three of those donuts. How much sicker are you gonna get if you eat all 12 this time? If you ate three donuts that made you sick, you will certainly get sick if you eat 12. And so the conclusion of that, that maybe silly, lesser to greater than argument is if, it, if, if eating three donuts had negative consequences for you, eating 12 donuts will certainly have worse consequences for you. And so the conclusion of the, our, our, our author in Hebrews in this lesser than greater than is simply if we refuse to listen to the message from angels and that led to negative consequences, how much greater is going to be the consequences if we refuse to listen to the superior son? Right? So do you see the contrast there? That, that's his point. And I think that's why he, he's drawing out this contrast, which means that to understand this passage, all we have to come away from it recognizing is that Jesus is far superior than angels. That'll set the stage for next week. So, so we can close our Bibles and be dismissed. No, it's not that easy. But, but if, if, as we're working through, 
Right? If you're confused, like, I don't get all these quotations, all this discussion, just, just re- refer to this. Jesus is greater than the angels. That's all you need to walk away here. That, that's the baseline of what you need to remember. And you can all walk away remembering that because next week he's going to build on that. And so if you're feeling confused or lost as you walk through these verses, keep going back to that fact. The main thing is that, the simple truth, that Jesus is superior to the angels. And so to make this point, our author gives four reasons, and, and we're going we're gonna to just walk through these reasons, one through four, of why Jesus, the Son, is superior to the angels. Now, I don't have an outline, so those of you who, who, are, who are ready to write your outline, uh, I'm switching up on you. We're just going to walk through these reasons. So I'm starting with reason one. Reason one, the Son is superior to angels is because the Son's unique relationship with the Father. That's there in verse five. Reason one, the superiority of the son is seen in the son's unique relationship with the father. So verse five picks up with an argument that that we left off at the end of verse four last week. So verse four says that the son has become as much superior to the angels as the name that he's inherited is more excellent than theirs. Now we didn't spend too much time there last week, but to understand what verse five means, we need to understand the logic of verse four. And so here's how I would explain it. The word, the son, the second person of the Trinity has always been, okay? So, so the word, the second person of the Trinity has always been, right? John 1, he was with God in the beginning. He was God in the beginning. There never was a time when the word was not equal with God, okay? This is part of understanding the, the Trinity. This one, this word has never not been. This one will never not fully be God. Always was, always will be. And so this, this one sometimes is referred to as the son, so, so, so if, you, if I were to ask you, well, who are the members of the Trinity? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So this Son language is sometimes used to define the, the second person of the Trinity. And in this sense, this word is the divine Son. Okay, so that's a category of the second person of the Trinity, the divine Son, you got it? So, so that's the divine Son. Now, all of that notwithstanding, There is a second sense in which the word, this eternally begotten second person, there's a second sense in which this word is referred to as a son. That's not in the divine son. And to understand that, all we have to recognize is what happened at the incarnation. The word did what? Became flesh. That's the incarnation. The word becomes flesh. So the divine son, the second person of the Trinity, becomes a human person. Now, in doing so, he doesn't lose any of his divine attributes. He doesn't cease to be divine. He's always been fully God. So the incarnation, he remains fully God, but he becomes fully man. So there's two natures in one person. His nature doesn't change during the incarnation. He doesn't become less divine. His deity, his nature is never demoted. The incarnation doesn't make him less than. He always has been and always will be fully God. However, and here's, here's, here's where we, we got it. You got to stick with me. When he takes on the flesh, when he adds a human nature to his divine nature, he becomes the God man. He becomes the God man, fully God, but also fully man in one person. That's the incarnation. And the reason for the incarnation, the reason that he takes on flesh, the reason that the child is born in Bethlehem is so that he, as the God man, might carry out God's eternal plan for saving his people. And that's the whole point of the incarnation. And that salvation plan was laid out long before Jesus stepped on the scene in Bethlehem. Right? It was a plan that, that long preceded the birth in the manger. 
In fact, his birth, his life, his ministry, and much more were all predicted and prophesied beforehand through the entire Old Testament. And one of the titles that foreshadowed the coming of the Messiah was the title Son. The Messiah, the the, the Savior is going to be the Son of God. Which means that long before Jesus took on flesh and became a man, there were categories, assumptions about the Messiah, the anointed one, And that title, the Savior, was going to be the Son of God. And so this title, Son of God, is not meant to convey the same thing that the title Divine Son is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so all of this can be summarized clearly or not so clearly, you can be the judge, with the statement, the Son became the Son. With, there's two senses of son there. The divine son became the messianic son. Now again, you may think, well, I don't care, right? I hope you care and I hope you stick with me because this is why it's important to understand the unique position of the son to the father. We have to understand these two categories because it's after Jesus completes his mission after he, he, he finalizes the rescue mission of salvation, he, he's resurrected and he ascends to the right hand of the Father and upon his ascension, he inherits the name of Son. He inherits the Messianic Son. He is vindicated and identified. He is the Son of God who, who accomplished the salvation that was predicted beforehand. And so as the result of his ascension, it's in his, his ascension that he ascends to the right hand of the majesty on high. And it's after his ascension that he occupies the place of all authority and all power. And this position has been reserved all along for the God-man, the Messiah, the Son of God, who would carry out God's eternal plan of saving God's people. And it is this father-son relationship that we see on display here in verse five. And so look at the two quotes there in verse five of Hebrews one. The author asked, for to which of the angels did God ever say, quote, you are my son, today I've begotten you? Question. That's his question. To which of the angels did he ever say that? What's the implied answer? None. He never said that to an angel, but he said it to someone there in that quote. Then, or again, continuing in verse five, to which of the angels did God ever say, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son? Now, the implied answer to the question of verse five is that God never said these things to any angel, but that he said them to Jesus, That's the whole point that it's included here in Hebrews 1. He's showing the superiority of the Son. He's saying, Jesus is the Son who has been made, declarations have been made about the Messiah, about Jesus. And he quotes first Psalm 2, verse 7. And so you don't have to go back there. You can write down Psalm 2 and go visit it later. But but Psalm 2 is centered around this royal king who's going to have rule and authority. And it's about the rule and authority of the anointed one, the king, And in verse seven of Psalm two, the the Lord says to the royal king, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And so this psalm is being used here in Hebrews 1, 5, although originally it would have been understood in light of the king of Israel, right, when the psalm is first first written, but now author of Hebrews is saying it's clearly about the, the, the life and ministry of Jesus and the ascension of Jesus. So the author of Hebrews is saying, The divine son who created the world is the one who became the king, the Messiah, the son, the one who has been begotten. In fact, write write this down, Acts 13, 33, because the same exact verse from Psalm 2, 7 is used by Paul in a sermon in Acts 13 to argue that the resurrection 
is the point at which Jesus becomes the son. Now, this is why the categories are important. Did you, was Jesus ever not the divine son? Of course not. He's always been the son. He always will be the son in the divine sense. But as it, at his resurrection and ascension, he becomes the son, the messianic son, the, the Messiah, the king, the royal ruler that Psalm 2 predicts. And Paul uses that in Acts 13.30 to make that exact point. saying, don't you know that this is Jesus? And so that's the first quote from Psalm 2.7. But then the second quote makes it even clearer because instead of quoting a psalm, the author quotes 2 Samuel 7. Now, if you remember 2 Samuel 7, this is, this is God talking to King David. And he makes the, these great promises to King David. And in 2 Samuel 7, verse 14 God makes a very specific promise regarding David's son. He makes promises regarding the son of David. And he says, the, the, the rule of your throne, David, will be forever. You'll have a son who will rule and reign forever. Now, and it becomes clear when Solomon is, is born and Solomon dies that he's not the king that's gonna rule and reign forever. And so there, there's this, this way that, that, that Israel views this and David's son to say, there is someone coming who's gonna be the son of David, the son of God who's gonna rule and reign forever. And of this son, the Lord says, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son, which again highlights this relationship between God the father and the Messiah the anointed king, the son of David, the son of God, which is reason one why the son is superior to angels. It's because the son has a unique relationship to the father. It's different than that of any angel to God. And so God has made declarations about the son that he never made about any angels. So that's the first reason. Second reason about the, superior, the superiority of the son is seen in verses six and seven, the role of the angels. So reason two, the role of the angels. And so he, he quotes again, verses six and seven, right there in verse six, he says, and again, when he, that is God, brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Now the firstborn here is the son, right? Which it's clear by this context and by the way it functions in this argument. And we can go back, Colossians one has a great way of, of or a great verse there in, in, as Christ as the firstborn, which explains it doesn't mean the, the first created one, but the one who has authority over all creation. Yeah, but, but so the firstborn son, when, when he's brought into the world, the quote here in verse six is, is the declaration is, let God's angels worship the son. And so, so that makes the point really clear. You don't worship something that's equal to or less than you. You worship someone greater than you. And so the angels don't worship a lower figure. So the son isn't lower. The son isn't equal. The son, according to Psalm 97, seven, which is where this quote comes from, the son is worshiped by these angelic beings conclusion, he must be superior to them. And it's not just the worship of the angels. Verse seven, the next quote of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. And so again, he, here's what the angels do. These jobs or these tasks described to angels in this quote from Psalm 104, they make the point that, that all the angels do is they serve God. They're his servants. They serve him. And it puts the angels in a decidedly subservient position to God. They're inferior to the son because remember all the way up in, in chapter one, verses one through four, it was made clear that the son is none other than, than God himself, one who shares the divine nature, who is very God of very God. And so the angels by, by implication worship the son. 
and they serve the son. They are subservient to him. And so the function of angels, the, 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 what the angels do, the role of angels shows the superiority of the son. Reason number three, we see verses eight through 12, we see the nature of the son. The nature of the son is the third reason why the son is superior. Having just used the image of, of wind and fire to describe the angels in verses eight through 12, the offer uses two more Old Testament quotes, one from Psalm 45, one from Psalm 102. But both of these quotations highlight so you had these, here's the, the, the temporal ministry of the angels, like wind and fire, right? These things are, are here and gone. But now to contrast verses eight through 12, here's the son whose nature is permanent and eternal. Again, the reason the son is superior is because of his very nature. So the first quote there, verse eight, but of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. Hebrews 1.9, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And so this quote here in, in verses eight and nine of Hebrews one comes from Psalm 45. And in verses six through seven of Psalm 45, in the shocking reality that, that when applied to the son, right, because he's saying this is what's true of the son. And, and what is true of the son is that his throne is to be eternal and his rule is gonna never end. But right there in verse eight, your throne, what's the next word? Oh God. And so this king, the son, is referred to with the divine name. Your throne, oh God, is forever and ever. This is a clear statement of the nature of this king. The Messiah would be none other than the Lord himself. The divine son would be the messianic son. And this God-man would rule and reign forever. And so here, the author of Hebrews is, is quoting Psalm 45 and saying, this is Jesus, the divine eternal son, who has become the messianic son, who is the Messiah. And so the author of Hebrews certainly understands for us to interpret Psalm 45 as meaning that Jesus is a king who is literally God. And this quote continues highlighting the nature of the rule and reign of this king. So it's not only his character, his, his rule, his kingdom, it's gonna be characterized by uprightness and righteousness. It's a morally superior rule and reign, a kingdom that could only be, be established by the Lord himself. And then the second quotation here in verse 10 from Psalm 102, just like the other Psalm, also highlights the nature of the son. So again, he's gonna rule and reign forever, eternal. He's gonna be God. But then verse 10, he quotes Psalm 102. Now, and listen, just listen to this. This is Psalm, I'm just reading Hebrews 1, verses 10 through 12. And as I, as I read, listen to the nature of the one being addressed because this is the divine son. This is the messianic son. This is what is being said of Jesus Christ. And listen to the nature that's ascribed to him, the God-man. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same. And your years will have no end. I mean, who else save God is this true of? And the author of Hebrews is saying, this is true of Jesus Christ. And that's his point. This is the Lord himself. And what's ascribed to this one 
He laid the foundation of the earth. He is the creator. He's the Lord who will remain forever and will have no end. And for the purpose of this passage in Hebrews 1, notice the contrast between the Lord who created all things and all things. Right? There is a distinction. There's the creator of all things and then there's all things, everything else. And the, the son is in this category of the Lord and everything else is not Lord. Which means that everything that isn't God, that isn't the Lord, is inferior, is temporary, which would certainly include who? What angelic beings? Angels. They are inferior to the Son. His point, the Son is superior, which leads to the final reason. Reason number four. The position of the Son. The position of the Son in these last two verses, which conclude the author's argument of the superiority of Christ, these last two verses, he refers to the position of authority that Christ now occupies. And in doing so, he comes full circle, as it were, all the way back around from where he was in in verses three and four of chapter one. Do you remember there in three and four last week, in this this prologue where he's describing the Son, he says, after making purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Again, this is the position of authority that the Messiah was to occupy, that he occupied after his resurrection, after his ascension. And so the reference in verses in in verse 13 of Hebrews 1 is a clear reference to Psalm 110, which we read at the very beginning of the service. In the quotation he asks, again, redundant question, rhetorical question that's gonna say, no angel ever heard this, but the son, to the son, God said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for for your feet. And the point is no angel was ever intended to occupy that position of authority or power. That was, that was one, one person was intended to occupy that position. And that is the God man, the Messiah, the Lord himself. No angel was ever intended to rule over creation. No angel was ever addressed in that way. But the son does occupy that position of authority and power. The son is intended to rule over creation. The son is addressed in that way. He is superior the son is superior. And to further emphasize his point, he mentions in verse 14, in, in closing of this section, he mentions the angels aren't ever addressed that way because the angels are ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. And so he places the, the angels as ministers to the children of God. So it's not the son that they're inferior to, it's, it's us those heirs of salvation who in the Son are counted as as co-heirs, as those who receive the inheritance, the blessing. Which isn't to say that the angels aren't significant or they don't play a significant role in God's plan because they do. But that's not his point here. His point is that they serve those who are gonna inherit salvation. And so so, so here you have the angels who, who serve those who are gonna inherit salvation And over here, you have the son who actually accomplishes salvation. That's gonna be inherited by the sons, by by the the children. And so one one commentator said, angels can serve us, but they cannot save us. And that's the distinction. No angel could ever save us, but that's what the son can and does do. And so 
the author of Hebrews concludes this first chapter and he sets the stage for what's going to come next week. And so in chapter one, the argument has been made. God has spoken to us by his glorious and superior son. And we had better listen up. We better listen to the son. And, and he's not done with Christ. He, he's going to continue showing the, the, the superiority of the son, the, that Jesus is better. He's going to continue uh, on that topic. He's not even done with angels yet because we'll see earlier in, in chapter two, not next week, but the following week we'll see, or next week and the following, we'll see angels again. But his point is that the son is far greater than any angel. And the son is far greater than we'll see Moses and then any priest and then any sacrifice. It's just Jesus is better, Jesus is better, Jesus is better. And so that's, that's what we're gonna see. And so as we close, I just wanna make, I think three points of application that are very brief and then Will's gonna come up and, and he's gonna lead us in a time of, of reflective prayer in light of this. But, but just before he comes, just three points of application. First, the authority of the son. Right? So we, we, as we read this, we ought to be struck with the authority of this son. In fact, the, the author of Hebrews focuses our attention on the preeminent position of Jesus in order to draw us to the preeminent authority of Jesus. He occupies this position because he has this, this authority. And we ought to just say, the son the son rules. The son has authority. And we have to just, just, just walk away from this recognizing the authority of Christ ought to have no rivals. There ought to be no rivals in our lives, in the lives of, of, of Christ's people. The voice of authority ought to be from him loud and clear all day, every day. We ought, we ought to shut out any other rivals who would contradict that authority. I mean, I mean, this is significant because we live in a very, secular age where, where just, just not, even, not even a secular age, but, but the life that you live and the life that I live, think about this, every single day authority is a constant source of disagreement. So, so who's your source of authority? What, what news source? I bet you're watching Fox News. I bet you're watching MSNBC, right? Who has the authority? Who, who knows what's true? You know, what, what's the podcast you're listening to? Or, well, I have a relative who works in the medical field and they know. Or I have a PhD, I know. Or, or I, I read this newspaper. Or I, and we're always looking for an authority on any given subject. Because we know, well, who, know, who has the last say? Who knows what's true? And this passage screams loud and clear, there are lots of sources of authority, but no authority is greater than that of the Son. There is none. He is greater than angels. He is greater than any other source of authority that you will ever look to or be tempted to look to. And so we just have to recognize that, that we all and every one of our neighbors, every one of, uh, of our, our friends or coworkers, every one of us live underneath some source of authority. We all look to some authority to govern our lives. And this passage, along with the whole storyline of the Bible, says, listen to the Son, listen to the Son, Hear the final word from God. He's the one whose authority is unmatched. He's the one whom you must listen to. Heed his words. Listen up. And so I just want us to, to, to be people who trust the authority of the Son. I mean, I long for us to be a church where the authority of Christ rules and reigns over all else. That's the banner under which we gather. I, I long for that to be the case. I long to be a pastor who gathers under that banner. I long to be a dad, a neighbor, a Christian 
who lives my life under the authority of Christ. His word is authoritative and final. I want us to hold fast to the anchor who is Christ. He will never, ever give way. His authority is unmatched. But second, we see related, very closely related, we see the worship of the Son. One clear point of these verses is that the angels were, were created to worship the Son, and we simply have to recognize that we were created to do the same. The Son has no equal in the purpose of God. Right? The Son is the climax of the workings and, and the, the plan of God, and therefore, he is to have no rival in the esteem of God's people. We ought to esteem Christ higher than anyone else, than anything else. Jesus is worthy of all our esteem. He's worthy of all our worship. In fact, notice what one commentator says. He says, these seven quotations, talking about here in Hebrews 1, these seven quotations of Old Testament passages, they're presented as a succession of words spoken by God to the Son, which we are permitted to overhear. This divine witness to the Son's majesty and authority carries with it the implication that the readers, us, whose privileged position is recognized as we're the inheritors of salvation, we ought to acknowledge his glory and put our confidence in him. And so we're eavesdropping on on the declarations that the Father makes to the Son, and we ought to say, wow, this Son is worthy of our worship. We ought to trust him. And then the last, last point of application is the rule of the Son, I mean, this is going to be a theme that the author of Hebrews picks up because the, 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 the son, the ruling and reigning royal king, is one day going to have all his enemies under his foot in subjection fully, submitted without question. We don't see that right now. His enemies aren't in submission to him completely and fully. But one day, this son will be the one to which every tongue confesses and every knee bows. In fact, in fact, Charles Spurgeon, here's a, here's a quote from Spurgeon. The sight of Jesus enthroned in divine glory, which is what we see here, sit at my right hand. The sight of Jesus enthroned in divine glory is the sure guarantee that all things are moving onward toward ultimate victory. Those rebels who now stand high in power shall soon be in the place of contempt. They shall be his footstool. He shall with ease rule his enemies. And I just want to, to close by, by saying this, that, that when it comes to the rule and the reign and the authority of Christ, you either submit to, to it or you rebel against it. And I know there are people here today that are rebelling against the rule and authority of this divine son. And I just want to tell you because I care for you, friend, that a day is coming when Christ will come back and he will come with terror and judgment and wrath. That day's coming. I wish it weren't, but it's not my authority that determines. The Lord is going to come and his enemies will be in total subjection to him forever and ever. And if, you're not, if you haven't put your faith in Jesus, you are in the category of rebel and you're in the category of one day submission, subject, judged, devoured by this king. That's your lot apart from Christ. But the good news, there's good news. There's good news. There's great news. You don't have to stay there because the son, verse four of chapter one, he made purification for sins and he sat down. 
And so for any who trust in the son, for any who look at the son who was crucified and buried and raised to, to, to glory, anyone who looks at him and says, I needed that sacrifice, I needed my sins paid for, for that one, there is not a fear of judgment and wrath because the sacrifice has been made and sins have been purified. Jesus paid it all. And so if you're not a Christian, I would, I would urge you, put your faith in the son He will receive you. You don't have to fix yourself. All you have to do is know your need of him. That's the only fitness he requires. And so you need him. I need him. Many of us here have have cast ourselves fully on Christ and we we would love for you to do the same. And so I would urge you, as we're singing, Come talk to me afterwards. Come talk to me. Talk to Will. Talk to someone you know that that loves Jesus, that's trusting him. We want to talk to you about what it means to eagerly anticipate the return of the king and not dread it. Well, let's pray as, as Will comes up.